This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Feeling the blues after all the great content from Saster Annual 2019 has come and gone? Join us in Paris for Saster Europa, coming up June 12th and 13th. Use the code FAVE15 and get 15% off just for tuning in. Up today, Logical CEO Andy Wilson. So a little bit about me. I've been making mistakes for 15 years. Uh, going on 15 years of mistakes here, um, we are not yet a publicly traded company because we weren't always a SaaS company. Uh, we were a services company started in Washington, D.C. Uh, we wrote software, um, and the service that we did is not too dissimilar to what we do today. Basically, big banks and law firms and government agencies would ship us uh, data for these large litigations, investigations. We would process it, and then we would ship it back, and we would charge them lots of money for that, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. Uh, it was a great business. We made uh, a lot of money. And so naturally, we decided to uh, blow it up and build a SaaS business. Uh, no, I am not a lawyer, uh, but I do make legal tech. So during the recession, we had this idea of what if we could automate this whole service and democratize it so anybody could do this. And we decided to do that. So we basically killed the services business and uh, built a, a software as a service business. It took us a long time. I thought if we'd be done in two years, it took us four years, and we've been a, a SaaS company ever since. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about selling, we're going to talk about hiring, firing, uh, culturing, if that's a word, um, and, and there's little mistakes uh, in here and, and hopefully tips that you guys can take away you know, as, you, as you're building your business. So let's first talk about selling, because that's what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to sell uh, more uh, faster. My, the biggest learning here, and some of this is going to be somewhat, somewhat obvious, you know, generic advice, uh, but for me it wasn't this way. Um, uh, sell the way your customers want to buy. It sounds obvious, but in hindsight, it actually is not obvious. I think too often we put our business model or our own personal goals ahead of what the customer actually wants to do. And I'm going to circle back to this at the end because that's ultimately, I think, the, the biggest learning here. Let's talk about pricing. I've made a ton of pricing mistakes uh, from packaging the software incorrectly to pricing too much or too little. I think a lot of founders struggle with this. Um, you know, it's often cited that founders will underprice their products. I think that's very true because it's, it's easy for us to, uh, easier for us to build these things and hard to understand the value that you create for the customer and how to capture that value. There's a really simple way of thinking about this um, that I found to be really useful is to find out what your ROI is in terms of either time saved or money saved, something like that, and keep it around 10x. It doesn't need to be much more than that. If, it, if it's way more than that, maybe you're actually leaving money on the table. So as an example, you know, if, if, if you're trying to get somebody to switch from something old to something new, and today it costs $100,000, you know, maybe your product should be more like $10,000. Um, it makes the switching costs, which is a very real thing, a lot easier for customers to process. Loss aversion is a very real thing that I think a lot of us face in the, uh, especially in the B2B world where you're trying to get people to switch from something old um, that was built in the 80s, 90s, or early 2000s into something new and more modern uh, in SaaS. So aim for that, um, that, that 10x ratio. Um, this is something that I think a lot of us are probably doing today, 
um, either intentionally or unintentionally. And that is getting your, your successful customers to write reviews for your service online, right? Well, how do you, how do, you do that? Uh, what we've done, we've automated it now. Uh, whenever somebody gives us a score of a 9 or a 10 in our NPS, and we wrote just a little widget that comes into the application, the next day they get an email from our marketing team that says, hey, you know, awesome, you're enjoying the service. Would you please go write a review for us on Captera G2 Crowd software advice? Uh, and we offer up a $25 gift certificate for that. Uh, it's an easy hack to do. My son does this with his uh, pet sitting business. He's 12 years old. And after he closes the customer and the owners come home, he asks them, you know, how did I do? A scale of 1 to 10. And if they say a 9 or a 10, he says, please, please write a review for me on Nextdoor. Uh, and he gets a lot of business that way. And you guys can do the exact same thing if you follow that, that process of, of use case. So once you've nailed that use case, then go try another one. My business is doing this exact same thing right now. We got early traction with a, a new use case uh, for, for our product, which, by the way, is a product that you probably haven't heard of because we are not, uh, you guys are not our customers. And hopefully you never have to use our product. It's for discovery, uh, investigations, litigations, those types of things. If you've uh, read much about the Mueller hack that just happened, where they got all these emails, that's the area that, that Logical plays in. Or you might have heard of the Scott Pruitt case with um, uh, him getting ousted from discovering all those emails. Uh, the Sierra Club and the New York Times use Logical to, uh, to do that uh, type of work. So find those use cases and then rinse repeat on those as much as you possibly can. Okay, last one on selling. Early on, we did not have a pitch deck. Uh, some of you probably have pitch decks. Uh, and, and you probably change them up a lot. I know I, know I do uh, from time to time. But I didn't have a pitch deck early on. I think that was a mistake. And the reason why the pitch deck exists is you're trying to tell a story. You, know, you want to go right into the product. And you want to show the customer like, all these amazing things that you can do for them. But they don't have the context of why you created this thing to begin with. You know, what is it that got you to come up with this idea, like what's getting you out of bed in the morning? What is the problem in the world that you see that only your product can help solve for them? So you need a pitch deck to do that. And there's a really simple way of constructing these pitch decks. Uh, it, sh it should not be about you, number one. And that's the tendency. Like when I first started making pitch decks, I would put up the big logo slide from the very beginning, like look at all our amazing customers. No one cares about that. You know, what they care about is, do you understand the problem that they have, which is the status quo? So start there, like what is the status quo? And then what happens to the people that continue on the status quo if they don't do anything, right? And then what happens to the people when they do do something? What's that promised land state? And that's the story that you need to paint that your product can only solve for them. There's some really great resources online that you can go to for that. Like um, uh, Andy Raskin uh, has written some really good blog, blog posts around this. Uh, but that's when, the way you want to construct your deck. So think of it as... If you were to outline it, um, you know, something about them, right? People love to talk about themselves. You know, put some research into who your customers are. Let them know that you've done that. A little bit about you, then the problem, then go into demo, right? Pretty, uh, uh, pretty simple process, but so I think to founders it can not be so obvious. Okay, switching gears here. Let's talk about hiring. Um, product is, is, is one thing. Hiring is a whole other thing, right? You can build the, the best product in the world, but if you don't hire the right people at the right time, you probably aren't going to build a, a really great business. And I think all of us in this room suffer from some form of imposter syndrome at some time. Like, 
can't believe you're running this company, that kind of thing. I will tell you this, like you are much better than you, you realize and don't take that for granted. Keep the reality distortion fields to a minimum, of course, uh, but just, just believe in yourself when you're um, you know, in these tough situations. That said, hire better than you. You, know, you want to get somebody that's another level or two uh, beyond where you want to be, not too far beyond. You, know, you don't want to go hire some huge CRO uh, too early in your company, most likely. Um, you, maybe you need a sales manager uh, to help those early reps uh, uh, get to scale faster. And when you bring on executives, especially, like we all have to hire executives, the tendency is to think that they're just going to sprinkle magical fairy dust on things and make everything better. And sometimes that happens. But there's a lot of knowledge transfer that needs to, to occur. Um, you know a lot about your business, much more than they will ever know. And you need to transfer that knowledge uh, with them. And they're going to transfer whatever they know into your head. So don't give them too much rope too soon. You don't want to let them hang themselves. And a way to, um, uh, to solve that, that, that I've done at least, and it, it's worked, is you, you block out a conference room or whatever room for the first 90 days, and you guys, you all sit in the same room together. Um, you're going to know within that first 90 days if this person is the right person for this job, and that's a good hack to do that. Um, this is another good hack that we've done that I wish I had done early on, and it saves so much time. Uh, it's old school, but it works. So after that first phone screen, when you're doing the uh, culture fit, you're doing the competence fit, and you're doing the compensation fit. Now, some people in here are probably in HR. You, in, in California, you can't ask people how much they make today, um, but you can ask around at comp expectations, but you have to be able to respond back with what you pay for this job, right? That's just the, the rule of the land in California. Uh, some of you that are not in California probably have different rules, so check with your HR people about that. Uh, but once you've assessed uh, the three C's and you're checking the box, like, okay, this person's within our price range, they seem smart, they seem like a good culture fit, go old school and send them a survey. And hopefully your survey is mapped to culture and competence. This is how we do it. Uh, part one and part two, it's a Google document. There's 10 questions for culture that map to our core values and the behaviors that um, that we want in people that work at our company. And then there's 10 questions that map to the job, and those are always specific to the job. And you, you send that to them as an attachment, uh, Word document, or, or share them out with a Google document, and you ask them, hey, could you complete this uh, 24 to 48 hours before your next phone screen? That's it. That's like test number one. You would be shocked how many people who you think are amazing can't complete that simple deadline. <laughs> Like really amazing, uh, seemingly qualified people just don't do that. And that's an instant way, or not instant way, but it's a very quick way of disqualifying somebody. Because if they can't fill out a survey that takes them one to two hours of their time, do you really want to spend the next thousand hours with them? Probably not. It's a really easy way of assessing it. The second thing that you can do with the culture and competence survey is you use this for the rest of the interview process. So you share this with the hiring team. And as you're going through the hiring process, maybe you do panel interviews. Those are a really good thing to do to save people time. Um, they're using this content to ask questions. Like, okay, here it says that you did X on Y. You know, tell me more about that. Um, and it'll save you a ton of time. Okay, flip side of hiring is firing. Uh, we all hate to, to, to make fires. So the one thing that I'll say about firing, and, and it's going on 15 years now, 
uh, the first 90 days of an employee's journey, the next 900 days almost exactly the same. Uh, very rarely do you see somebody that comes on in 90 days as remarkably different than they were in 900 days. Now, obviously, they're going to learn, learn new skills along those times, but you will know if this person's really a culture fit within 90 days, can they actually do the job within 90 days? Um, and back to what I was mentioning with the culture surveys and those things, it'll prevent those things from happening. One of the things that we've done to uh, eliminate the, the problem of hiring somebody and being a mishire is we have a mutual 90-day uh, agreement. So if you think about it from the employee's perspective, you know, they're taking a gamble on joining your company, right? This is part of their career. And they don't know yet if it's going to be the right decision. And the same thing for you. Your trust battery is not full yet for most of the people. Some people you know, it's a known thing. But most people, you don't know these people. They're strangers or they're, they're uh, uh, connected to a friend of a friend, those types of things. During that uh, first 90 days, do 30-day check-ins. And you're assessing whether or not they still think it's a good fit, right? So put yourself in the employee's shoes. Is this still a really good fit? And uh, and, and the manager's shoes, is this still a really good fit? And the way that you can do that is a simple thing around agreements. So we talk a lot about setting expectations. Like you guys have all said that. I bet you said that in the past week. Like let's set expectations. Uh, Don't set expectations. Set agreements. Get agreements with people. You have an agreement that this is the job that we need you to do. Um, not my expectations, because expectations are usually one-sided. You know, it's what you think, right? An agreement is a contract between you and the employee. And it doesn't have to be cold-hearted or anything. It's just simple. You know, like, as an example, when you, when you hire a contractor to put a roof on your house, do you, ha- do you sign an expectation document? <laughs> no, you sign agreements. Um, and the same is true with, with employees. And try, try not to make as many assumptions. Okay. Uh, let's talk about advisors. This is a, uh, it's kind of like a black art. Like there's not a lot of, um, at least that I've seen, a lot of good content or talks about how to build an advisory board. Like how do you do this stuff? And man, if you do this early on, it's similar to SAS. It all compounds. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Uh, so, um, and I wish I had done this early on. I did not. Uh, and, and, and it's a mistake. But I've, I've now rectified that. And what I've done and I think you guys would find this really helpful, is you find the best advisor for each functional role, right? Because you are not going to be good, great at everything. Like as CEOs, you're doing everything, taking out the trash, you know, picking up the trash in the hallways, you name it. You're basically just a trash man. Um, so, and you're not a, a, an amazing sales leader or marketing leader or product. Like there's somebody out there that's better than you. Go find them and hook them up with your functional leader, each one. Uh, and so how do you do that? Uh, similar to how you would get uh, introduced to a venture capitalist. Um, you can cold email them, go ahead, do that. Or you could get introduced to them uh, by somebody else, right, that they're connected to. Uh, that's what I've done. I've reached out, to, you know, use LinkedIn, it's pretty simple, and get introduced to people that you think would be a really great value add. And you're going to want to look for people that are maybe a stage or two beyond where you want to go, right? Um, you know, maybe two years beyond, three years beyond, something like that. I've gotten people like uh, Jeff Diana, who's a former chief people officer at Atlassian, to help out with our, our HR team. Uh, Mercy Grace, she ran 
uh, she was the original product manager at Slack uh, to help our product team. Uh, Dan Fougere, chief revenue officer at, at Datadog, uh, which is an amazing company to help out with sales. And I, I got introduced to them, right? And you, can, you guys can do the exact same thing. So how do you pay them? Um, and what do you ask of them? One hour of their time a month will go a long way. And you schedule this in advance because they're busy people just like you guys. But you ask for one hour a month for one year. That's a typical advisory uh, agreement. And, and how much do you pay them? Well, you don't want to actually give them any money. An advisor that asks for money is probably not an advisor you want on your team. Because an advisor is trying to help you grow the business, right? They're trying to expand that share price. And if you pay them cash out of the balance sheet, it's actually decreasing it. And it's a small amount, but it's, it's counterproductive. So you want to give them equity um, options in your company. Well, how do you do that? The way that I've structured it is real simple. Um, what would I pay this person as a consultant? You know, if I were to meet them at a party and say, hey, I really have this problem. Can you help me to do this? Uh, how much would I pay them? Now, of course, this will vary, but a good rule of thumb is $1,000 an hour. That's how much I would pay uh, somebody for their time. And so you're thinking, okay, that's 12 hours out of the, a year if you, if you commit to that. Well, just divide that. That's $12,000 divided by what your last par value is or preferred price is. And boom, there's your options. That's it. And they vest, you know, uh, within the year and, and you can renew it every year. I've had advisors that have been with the company now for three years and I refresh their grants every year. And I have calls with them every month, uh, pre-scheduled. It's amazing. And you also get introduced to their networks. So your networks just get stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, if you're not doing this uh, today, I highly, highly recommend you start doing it. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about culture. Okay, so as the saying goes, culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? But if, if you have no strategy, your culture will starve. So if you think about it, you should probably start with strategy first and then build the right culture to execute on that strategy. Um, it's, it's a non-obvious thing, but it actually makes a lot of sense. And it's true that if you do have a strong culture, you can crush that strategy, but you gotta think, it, think about it in reverse. And the one way to, to do this is around core values. So I've talked with a lot of um, CEOs and, and, and executives of amazing companies, and if you ask them about how they make decisions, oftentimes they will, they will cite a core value. This just happened to me 30 minutes ago when I was talking with Doug Song, uh, who is the CEO of um, Duo Security. Uh, we recently brought on a board director that was his president and COO. We were talking about that. And he mentioned one of the say's core values, which I might end up adopting because I really like it, is engineer the business. I was like, oh, that's amazing. I had dinner once with John Chambers at Cisco, and I asked him, like, why didn't you buy this company, and why did you buy this company? And every question he just kept coming back with was core values. That company didn't align with our core values. He's from West Virginia, has a super West Virginia accent, which I can't do, clearly. <laughs> um, but core values are really important, and there's a right way to do them and a wrong way. This is my opinion. Um, I think you, gotta, you have to choose core values that are true to you, and you, you're not just going to come up with them in a, in a, in a room with, with two people. If you've got more people in the company, you should involve everybody. And they have to be true. Uh, they, they can't just be some, something stolen off of a, a, a website somewhere. They have to be something about your company. 
And I suggest you choose roughly five. And the only reason for that is it's hard to remember more than five. Uh, you know, and we're all smart people, but like five, five seems about right. We have four. Start with the why. Pursue powerful simplicity. Put the customer first and do the right thing. I highly recommend if you don't have do the right thing and you are a tech company, maybe you should think about that. Uh, especially as we get more and more data, as you've been seeing about Facebook and, and Google um, these days. It'd be great if they had those, those values. Okay, so more on culturing. Let's talk about communication. Communication and culture are really important, especially as you start to scale. Um, you, you get into the, uh, the phone game where it's really hard to understand what's actually going on. Um, connected to this is meeting cadence. I wish I had thought about this more early on, and I didn't. And you get into a meeting culture, and meeting cultures suck. Most of you guys probably escaped some company that had some horrible meeting culture where it's like, we got to create a meeting to talk about this thing. Can't that just be an email? Uh, more often than not, it is. I'm, I'm guessing 90% of uh, corporate meetings should be in some sort of email, uh, at least at you know, the big companies. So the way to think through this is to, to um, productize your meeting structure and think about your meeting structure throughout the year. Like, what is a logical cadence? Think about the meetings that you should have on an annual basis, a quarterly basis, a monthly basis, and a weekly basis. And then design the rules around those meetings, right? Like one simple rule that will save your employees an enormous amount of time is, and you have to live by this, is if somebody calls a meeting and doesn't put an agenda together, no meeting. Don't do it. That's a waste of time. Make sure that they, they put their, their thoughts down on paper. You will save people a ton of time. So lastly, let's talk about your why. You know, what is it that you're trying to do? What, what are you trying to disrupt? What is the mission? What is your reason for existing? Uh, put that ahead of the business model every time. And finally, sell the way your customers want to buy. Just ask them. Don't copy the competitors. Maybe they're not doing it right. Go ask your cu customers, what do you like about the way that we're selling the product? So it's a pretty obvious question to ask, but sometimes we naively think that that's what they want. Just ask them. And when you do that, Something like this could happen. We weren't doing that for a long time, and the second that we said, hey, how would you, how would you like to buy this software? Holy moly. We went from 100 customers in, in one, and starting in March of 2017, and that took us three years to do, to 600 customers in December of that same year, and then last year, we added another 740 customers, and it's just taken off like a rocket ship. And I firmly believe if you follow these basic this basic structure of selling the, selling the way your customer wants to buy, I think you can do the exact same thing. Thank you.